Welcome to Sports History 101, a production of the Saints Sports Network. Hello everyone and welcome into episode number two of Sports History 101. I am your host, Ray Delgado. Today our subject will be the 2001 Arizona Diamondbacks. If you don't know why 2001 was important for the Diamondbacks, then just sit back and enjoy the show. And if you know why it was a big deal, then still sit back and enjoy the show. We'll get to the 2001 season, but first we have to go back to the beginning for the Diamondbacks, which really is not that long ago. Major League Baseball awarded Arizona, specifically Phoenix, and Jerry Colangelo one of two new expansion franchises in March of 1995, with the plan for the first season of play to be 1998. The other franchise would be the Tampa Bay Devil Rays. Jerry Colangelo already owned the Phoenix Suns franchise, the basketball team in town, and set to work quickly after the franchise was awarded to put together an organization. The biggest hire that he made out of the gate and really for the next three or four years was that of Buck Showalter, the New York Yankees manager from the 1992 to 95 seasons that was known for his hard-nosed attitude and knack for leadership. Really, he was heralded as one of the best managers in the game. And because the Yankees are the Yankees, they decided, you know what, we're not happy with you, so we're not going to resign you. So Colangelo, acting very quickly, locked down Showalter three seasons before the Diamondbacks would even start playing and made him the mastermind behind the Diamondbacks. Showalter and Colangelo worked together for the next two years to assemble their organization, one through the amateur draft, uh, which is how they, they built their organization to start with. They drafted amateur players and they had minor league teams. And then the 1997 expansion draft was the other huge thing that allowed for both the Diamondbacks and the Devil Rays to pick players from each of the 30 existing team's rosters. So it's the expansion draft's really something very interesting. Might do something on that later on. Uh, but basically, the two new teams get to take players from the rosters of all the other major league teams. There were rules, obviously, like no organization could have more than two players taken in a round of the expansion drafts. And, but at the end of it, both the Diamondbacks and the Devil Rays got 35 major league baseball players, which was huge because all those teams had already were minor league players. When the Diamondbacks eventually took the field in 1998, there was a lot of fanfare and news surrounding the team, obviously, because they're new. But they still lost 97 games. Despite Buck Showalter's meticulous planning and leadership, it's the first year. What do you really expect? However, they would not stay down for long. The team already had great players in shortstop Jay Bell, third baseman Matt Williams, and outfielder Luis Gonzalez, who they traded for and acquired or signed through free agency, but they needed more than that. For the 1999 season, Showalter and Colangelo acquired a number of players. So for their second season, they got big names like Steve Finley and Tony Womack, as well as a lot of starting pitching talent, because that's where their, their needs were. The biggest acquisition, of course, was Randy Johnson. Randy Johnson was the ace of the Seattle Mariners for five years from 1993 to 97. His contract was up after 1998, and even though he was the most dominant left-handed pitcher in the game, he was 34 years old, 
and the Mariners did not intend to resign him, so Johnson asked for a trade before the season, before the 97 season, that is. He wasn't traded and made 23 disgruntled starts. He was not happy for Seattle and really didn't have much success. But then they dealt him midseason to Houston, where he finished out the season in his fantastic Cy Young form, winning 10 games and 11 starts with a 1.28 earned run average. And that set him up really well for free agency. The six foot ten left-hander had a number of suitors, as you can imagine. All of them winning teams, except for the upstart Diamondbacks, who eventually won out, which was crazy. Johnson really took a chance on Arizona, believing in Showalter and Jerry Colangelo that they could put together a winning team quickly because he wanted to win now because he was already into his 30s and technically on the back end of his career. For his decision, the Diamondbacks made him the second highest player in the game, agreeing to a four-year contract with a fifth-year option that totaled $52.4 million. That, again, might not seem like a whole lot of money now, but wow, was that that a lot of money then? And this signing would prove to be arguably the best free agent signing in the history of the game because of what Johnson would go on to do for the Diamondbacks. 1999 season was the opposite of 1998. As Arizona won 100 games, as Finley, Gonzalez, Williams, and Bell each drove in over 100 runs, and Randy Johnson pitched 271 innings, which included 12 complete games, two shutouts, and a 2.48 ERA, which netted him the first of his four consecutive Cy Young Awards. Cy Young Awards, for those of you who don't know, are the awards that are granted to the best pitcher in each league. So one one person gets him in the National League, the other gets it in the American League. Unfortunately, even though they had a lot of success that season, they lost in the division series to the New York Mets. So the season was a wash. 100 wins, but you didn't get anything really. The 2000 season was expected to be another great one, but the team lacked some star pitching power. Really, their rotation started and ended with Randy Johnson, and they finished third in the National League West with a record of 85-77. and 77. Decent, but not great. However, one huge thing to come from the season came before the trade deadline. So the July 31st trade deadline is the huge thing in baseball because that's when you can trade players without having to have them go through waivers, which I won't explain because that's a whole complicated process. So before that deadline in 2000, the Diamondbacks acquired the Philadelphia Phillies ace, Kurt Schilling, on July 26th in exchange for four players. That trade gave Arizona, in effect, the best one-two punch in the league as Schilling was a proven workhorse ace that would slot in perfectly behind Randy Johnson in the rotation. Schilling was... He'd been in the league for a while with the Phillies. Phillies had not had success in a long time, but Schilling repeatedly proved that he was a good pitcher and really, really hit his stride when he joined the Diamondbacks. That trade really set the stage for the 2001 season, which we'll get into after a quick break. The 2001 Diamondbacks roster was about as complete a roster as you can get in every aspect except for the bullpen, which would pose a problem later on. The biggest change that was made in the offseason was that the architect of the organization, 
Buck Showalter was let go because of differences between he and Jerry Colangelo. That was really disappointing because Buck Showalter was a fantastic manager. He would go on to manage really great teams after the Diamondbacks and was a manager up until only a couple of years ago with the Orioles. But as it happens in sports all the time, if you don't get along with the owner, you don't keep your job for very long. So Buck Showalter was replaced with Bob Brenly. Everything really started to click for Arizona in 2001 as the season went on. They reached the All-Star break with a 51-36 and 36 record and were represented in the All-Star game by Randy Johnson, Kurt Schilling, and Luis Gonzalez. Johnson had a great first half of the season. He made 19 starts, pitched to a 2.71 ERA over 130 innings, and held batters to just a 206 average, which is very low. Schilling was also having a good year. He pitched five complete games, picked up 12 wins with a 320 ERA. Gonzalez, the hitter of the group, was an all-star if there ever was one. He played in all 87 games for the Diamondbacks before the all-star break and hit 355. For reference, 300 is what's been the mark for a long time of a good hitter. And if you hit 320, you're a pretty pretty good hitter. And if you hit above 330, 340, that's great. So for the first half of the season, 355, that's great. And a 443 on base percentage. Again, if that's above 420, 430, that's a pretty great, pretty great percentage. In doing so, he collected 117 hits, scored 75 runs, and drove in 86 runs, which is a fantastic first half. There's really no other way to put it. The team's second half was not as dominant as the first. They went 41-34, and 34, and their four-and-a-half game lead in the division coming out of the All-Star break was quickly down to just a half game, 11 games after. So, really, they did not start off well. And things were really not helped along by a couple of four-game losing streaks. But at the end, those were erased by a nine-game win streak in the dog days of August, which really made a difference because when you're getting into the end of August and September, it is really tough, really tough because you've already played 100 and 120, 130 games and you're kind of in that no man's land between the all-star break and trying to fight for the playoffs. So that nine-game win streak then is huge. The San Francisco Giants were hot on their tails basically for the whole second half of the season. All the way through the conclusion, but Arizona was able to hold them off, holding at least a two-game lead for the last nine games of the year. So for the last week and a half or so, they had a cushion, so they didn't really have to worry that much, but it was close enough to, to really not be good, close for comfort. Luis Gonzalez continued to hit the cover off the ball in the second season. He cooled off a little bit from his first half, but still posted a 290 batting average, over a 400 on-base percentage, and 56 more RBI. So in total for the regular season, Gonzalez finished just two hits shy of 200, 142 runs batted in, and 57 home runs. His final average would be 325, and his on-base percentage was 429. So still both above those, those benchmark numbers of 300 for batting average and 400 for on-base percentage. Really good season. He was also walked an astounding 100 times and scored 128 runs. He was only walked 
less times than Barry Bonds and Sammy Sosa. And for that, he finished third in MVP voting behind Barry Bonds and Sammy Sosa. Not just because of his walk rates, because of other things, but we'd both know that they were both on steroids, Barry Bonds and Sammy Sosa were, so we can't really take their uh, numbers for certain. Kurt Schilling lowered his earned run average by a half a run in his last 16 starts to 270 and picked up 10 more wins for the regular season. Schilling continued his workhorse ways for the whole year, pitching 256 innings on his way to a 22-6 and record. If a pitcher goes over 200 innings, that's considered a really reliable pitcher. They go over 200, that's crazy. He was also just shy of the 300 strikeouts with 293 and had just under a 3 ERA. The showstopper for this season was probably who you'd expect in Randy Johnson or the big unit as he was nicknamed because he was six foot ten. He lost only once following the All-Star break and racked up 170 strikeouts, only allowing a 200 batting average for his opponents. To put that against his full season stats, he was nothing short of great. Johnson pitched 249 innings and fanned, so struck out, a league-high 372 batters. 372. That's ridiculous. Most pitchers struggle to get to 300. He almost got to 400. And did that in 34 starts. He held opposing batters to just a 203 average and finished with the league-leading 2.49 earned run average which still to this day is a good number. As pitchers get better, that's that number still holds a lot of water. The regular season concluded on Sunday, October 7th for the Diamondbacks, clinching the division by two games despite losing their last two games to the Brewers. Winning the National League West set Arizona up to take on the St. Louis Cardinals out of the National League Central Division in the first round of the playoffs. Game one of the National League Division Series, or the NLDS, between the Diamondbacks and the St. Louis Cardinals was tabbed for Tuesday, October 9th in Phoenix. Starters for game one were Kurt Schilling for the Diamondbacks and Matt Morris for the Cardinals. It was a pitcher's duel throughout, but it was the Diamondbacks' day as Schilling was nearly unhittable. Pitching in his first postseason game since 1993, remember we said the Phillies really were not that great across Schilling's whole tenure, the ace wasted no time, sitting down his first three hitters with seven pitches to open the game. Morris pitched well himself as the potent Arizona lineup got to him early, but he was able to keep runs off the board in the opening innings. The difference maker in the contest came in the fifth inning for the Diamondbacks. The inning before, Arizona had runners on first and third, which is one out, but could not push a run across. In the fifth, Damian Miller was hit by a pitch, and then Schilling laid down a bunt to move him to second. After a flyout from Tony Womack, Steve Finley finally got the Cardinals, got to the Cardinals' Matt Morris. Finley worked a 2-1 count, two balls, one strike count, before roping a single into shallow center field for his third hit of the game that allowed Damian Miller to score and put the Diamondbacks up by a run. After getting some run support, Schilling locked in even more, only allowing one hit through the next four innings. When the dust settled and Jim Edmonds grounded out to second, Schilling allowed just three hits and struck out nine in his first postseason shutout 
that gave Arizona a 1-0 series lead. The next night was game two of the series with Randy Johnson on the mound. Everything did not go according to plan this time around, as Johnson threw 113 pitches over eight innings, but allowed three runs. Still a good start, but not really what they were looking for. Two of those runs coming in the top of the first inning when the great Albert Pujols, one of the best hitters ever, hit, hit one over the fence with Red, Edgar Renteria on base. The Cardinals intact on one more in the ninth, but the Diamondbacks were only able to muster one run in the contest, which evened the series 1-1. One one. Game 3 pitted two middle-of-the-rotation guys against one another in Miguel Batista for the Diamondbacks and Daryl Kyle for the Cardinals in St. Louis at Busch Stadium. Jim Edmonds of the Cardinals blasted a home run to right center to put St. Louis up 2-0 in the fourth inning. Arizona answered in the sixth with the Gonzalez home run to cut the lead in half. The seventh inning is when the damage was done, as Greg Colburn singled to tie up the game, and then later in the inning, Craig Council swatted one over the left field fence to give the Diamondbacks a 5-2 victory. With the chance to win the series, Game 4 got off to a really good start for Arizona, scoring a run off of a Finley single in the top of the first inning in St. Louis, so they had a one-run lead early. However, the lead would not last long, as St. Louis scored in the bottom of the first inning, and then scored in the second and third to cruise to a 4-1 win and tie up the series 2-2. The Diamondbacks were definitely the better team in this series, and it was not expected to go five games. So for the final game of the series, the teams headed back to Phoenix with Kurt Schilling and Matt Morris facing off once again. And once again, it was a pitcher's duel. St. Louis got to Schilling in the first inning with a single and a walk, but he quickly settled down and pitched brilliantly from then on out. Morris also turned in his second grade start of the series, allowing the Diamondbacks to get on base and allowing a lone run in the fourth inning with a home run off the bat of Reggie Sanders. Pitching with the lead, Schilling continued to mow the Cardinals' batters down, but J.D. Drew was finally able to break through in the top of the eighth inning with a home run that deadlocked the game at 1-1. Schilling allowed a leadoff single in the top of the ninth, but slammed the door with a ground out and two swinging strikeouts, two huge swinging strikeouts, to pitch his second complete game in five days. Down to the last three outs to avoid extra innings, the Diamondbacks went to work. Slugger Matt Williams doubled to right to lead off the effort, replaced by pinch runner Midre, I think that's how you say his name, Cummings. The next batter, Damian Miller, sacrificed bunted to move Cummings to third. Then Greg Colbrun was intentionally walked. So they got runners on first and third. Tony Womack was up to bat next, and after working a 1-1 count, the Diamondbacks to try, decided to try the fabled suicide squeeze. So as Cummings started to race towards home and Womack tried to lay down a bunt, Womack failed and Cummings was tagged out at home. Luckily, though, Colburn moved to second and then was pinch run for by Danny Bautista. So the suicide squeeze is when basically there's a runner on third base and the hitter at the plate has to bunt the ball. They have to bunt it. They have to make contact with, with the pitch because the third 
the runner on third base is running home no matter what. They start running when the pitcher starts to deliver the ball and they're not stopping. So, unlike unfortunately what happened to Tony Womack, he failed to bunt. The catcher caught the ball, stepped forward, and just tagged the runner as he was coming in with little effort. But if that bunt gets down, if they that ball actually gets in play, you can score a run with the speedy guy on third, which they had. So now after that failed bunt, Womack still at the plate. Danny Bautista's at second, and Womack has a chance to redeem himself, and he does. He dumps a single into left field that scores Batista from second and sent the Diamondbacks to the NLCS. We're going to take one last break before we get deeper into Diamondbacks postseason. Just two days after the NLDS concluded, on October 16th, Randy Johnson and Greg Maddox took the mound for Game 1 of the National League Championship Series between the Diamondbacks and the Atlanta Braves. Arizona got to Maddox in the bottom of the first and again in the fifth, which proved to be enough for the win. Johnson pitched the Diamondbacks' third complete game of the postseason, only allowing three hits, one walk, and struck out 11. Game two was all Atlanta. Braves scored in the first inning and then seven more between the seventh and eighth innings to even up the the series one-to-one. The third game saw Schilling take the rock again and remain undefeated. Going the distance for the third time, he only allowed one run and struck out 12. Craig Council led the team with three hits, and Steve Finley had two hits with three runs batted in. In Game 4, Arizona's offense blitzed Greg Maddox once again. Maddox was chased after just three innings, allowing six runs, four of them earned, and put Atlanta in a situation that they wouldn't be able to get out of. This was huge because Greg Maddox, for the longest time, was basically untouchable as a pitcher. He was fantastic, and to be able to hang that many runs on a guy like that was really, really big. The Diamondbacks scored five more runs, put four of, four of them in the ninth to win 11-4 to four and lead the series 3-1, to one. basically putting Arizona just one game away from the World Series. Back in Atlanta, the guy for both teams that you want on the mound in Johnson and Tom Glavin were set to work. The teams were evenly matched through four, as each hurler gave up one run. Just one inning later, the Diamondbacks again sent the starter out early, tagging Glavin with two more runs and causing him to be pulled. Playing from behind, the Braves pushed one more run across in the seventh inning to get the score to 3-2 and give them a chance. Randy Johnson handed off the ball to Byung-Hun Kim, the Arizona closer for the final two innings, and he got the job done, sending the Diamondbacks to their first World Series. The stage was set not too long after. One of the most storied franchises in the New York Yankees who were looking to win their fourth World Series in a row, and one of the youngest in in the Arizona Diamondbacks. The Yankees had only lost one World Series game in the last three years And while this Diamondbacks team was good, 
the Yankees were still the odds-on favorite to win their 27th World Series and fourth in a row. The opening game of the World Series was Saturday, October 27th at Bank One Ballpark in Arizona. Schilling continued to dazzle in his fourth postseason start. Even though he was scored on in the first inning, he managed to settle down and hold New York to just three hits across seven innings. The Diamondbacks lineup took advantage of Mike Messina, one of the great Yankee starters, at pushing five runs across in just three innings to give him a warm welcome to the desert. In the fourth, Arizona scored three more on reliever Randy Choate to take a commanding 9-1 lead that would give them a 1-0 series lead in the World Series. The 1-2 punch of the Diamondbacks hit hard for the second night in a row. Randy Johnson pitched a gem, locking down a complete game shutout, allowing just three hits and one walk while striking out 11. Andy Pettit, yet another great Yankee starter, was hung with the loss as a double by Danny Batista in the second opened up the scoring and a three-run home run in the seventh off the bat of Matt Williams ended it, giving Arizona a comfortable and unbelievable 2-0 lead. The series swung to New York for the next two games, which did not bode well for Arizona. Before the game, one of the most iconic moments of this century in the U.S. took place as President George Bush threw out the ceremonial first pitch to empower Americans almost two months following the September 11th attack on New York. He also delivered a strike, which was great. The fact that he was able to do that in front of really millions of people after the tragedy that struck the United States was awesome. It was huge and really, really was a big deal. Brian Anderson drew the start for game three and faced off against Roger Clemens. Roger Clemens was, well, he was known to be really a terrible person, a phenomenal pitcher, but he was also on steroids, so we really can't say. But at this point, that doesn't really matter because Diamondbacks still have to beat this guy. Clemens held the Diamondbacks to just three hits and one run before handing the ball off to the dreaded Mariano Rivera, who didn't allow a hit across his final two innings. Anderson pitched well himself, only allowing five hits and two runs, but that was enough to take the loss as the Yankees tallied their first win. Game four would also take place in Yankee Stadium, but this day seemed to favor the Diamondbacks, as this time one of their aces in Schilling was taking on Orlando Hernandez, who is a back-of-the-rotation guy for New York. Both starters were up to the task for the day, only giving up one run each, both home runs to tie the score at 1-1 through four innings. Schilling continued his torrid postseason, only giving up three hits over seven innings and striking out nine. Hernandez also had himself a day, allowing just four hits and not letting four walks push any more runs across through six innings, which is pretty substantial against this Diamondbacks lineup. The game remained tied through seven innings before Arizona was able to break through with a double and a fielder's choice, which plated two runs in the eighth and put the Diamondbacks on top by two. Schilling, for just the second time in the postseason, handed the ball off instead of completing the game, 
And he handed the ball off to closer Byung-Hun Kim in the eighth inning and all looked well as he struck out the side. Down to the last three outs, Arizona fans were still on the edge of their seats as Kim in the ninth was no sure bet. Throughout the season, Kim was famous for pitching in the ninth inning with a runner 2-1 lead and giving up a home run to blow the game. He was famous for it, and every Diamondbacks fan really dreaded seeing him come in, but kind of unfairly, because when he was when he was on, he was on, and really it took one bad pitch, and it seemed that his one bad pitch was just a meatball right over the middle of the plate that always went over the fence. Unfortunately, this time, Diamondbacks fans were correct. As with two outs and a man on first, Tino Martinez bombed a ball over the right center fence to tie up the game and shortly after send a dash innings. Arizona went quietly in the 10th as the heart of their order and Craig Council, Luis Gonzalez, and Batista all grounded out facing Mariano Rivera. Bob Brenly, the Diamondbacks manager, decided to leave Kim in to pitch the 10th and that looked like a good decision after two fly, fly ball outs. But then, as he had done just one inning prior, served up a home run ball to Derek Jeter, none other, to even the series at two games apiece. Two heartbreaking losses. Because all you had to do was steal one in Yankees territory, and you've only got one left. Home field advantage really proved to make the difference for both teams throughout the whole series, along with the mistakes of Byung-Hun Kim. Game five was no different, as Mike Messina made it through eight innings this time, giving up two solo home runs to Steve Finley and Rod Barajas. Miguel Batista pitched great for the Diamondbacks, not allowing a run through seven and two-thirds, and handed it off to Greg Swindle, who got the last out in the eighth, and set the Diamondbacks up to take a 3-2 series lead. Sticking with their closer, sticking by him even though he blew it the night before, Kim trotted out to the mound for the ninth inning with a 2-0 lead. The script was much the same as it was the night before. The Yankees were down to their last out with a runner on base. Kim went into his motion, delivered the pitch, then turned and watched it sail over the fence to tie up the game. In extra innings, the Diamondbacks had a great opportunity in the 11th to score, but Rivera was just able to escape. The game was decided in the bottom of the 12th, as Alfonso Soriano singled to score the runner from second and give the Yankees their third straight win and put them just one game from winning the World Series. After a day to recoup and fly back to Phoenix, the Diamondbacks were ready to go for Game 6. Randy Johnson drew the start and went about his business, going seven innings and allowing two runs. The big story of the night was the Diamondbacks' offense, taking it to Andy Pettit, scoring one in the first, three in the second, and eight runs in the third inning. Four Diamondbacks had three or more hits as the team accumulated 22 hits on the night led by Danny Batista, who had five runs batted in. Fantastic night. 
Arizona tacked on three more runs just because in the fourth inning and cruised to a 15-2 to victory to force a Game 7 in Phoenix. The air was electric in Phoenix all the next day as nearly 50,000 fans got ready to pack Bank One Ballpark on November 4th and thousands more watched from the three streets outside and at home. Game 7 of the World Series is not for the faint of heart, and both Kurt Schilling and Roger Clemens were anything but. Both Schilling and Clemens pitched lights-out baseball. Schilling only allowed one hit through his first six innings, facing the minimum number of batters throughout. In the bottom of the sixth, Steve Finley led off with a single off of Clemens, then was driven in by Danny Batista to put the first run on the board in the contest. However, the one-run lead would not last long as the Yankees finally managed to get men on base in the seventh as Tino Martinez plated Derek Jeter to even the score at one. Clemens was relieved in the seventh, but Schilling continued to work into the eighth, which might have been a little too long this time. You can't blame Brenly for leaving his stud pitcher in, but after a leadoff home run by Soriano and a single by David Justice, Schilling was pulled with the score now 2-1 to one Yankees. Miguel Batista threw one pitch to get one out and then was replaced by none other than the big unit. Randy Johnson had pitched seven innings the night before, as we mentioned, but made sure that his manager knew that if he was needed for Game 7, Johnson could and would pitch. Well, Johnson's number was called to get the final out of the eighth, and he succeeded in doing so. The Yankees also brought out their elite, naturally unleashing Mariano Rivera for the two-inning save. Rivera struck out three batters in the eighth to hand it over back over to the Diamondback staff for the top of the ninth. Learning from his prior mistakes, Brenly left Byung-Hun Kim in the pen and continued with his dominant lefty ace. Johnson once again delivered, sitting down Bernie Williams, Tino Martinez, and Jorge Posada, the 3-4-5 hitters in the order, striking out Posada swinging to keep the Diamondbacks in it and down just one run. The Diamondbacks, unfortunately for them, had their 7-8-9 hitters, so they had the bottom of the order up to face Mariana Rivera in the bottom of the ninth and all signs pointed to the Yankees winning their fourth straight title. Mark Grace led off with a single to center and was able to move to second on a bunt by Damian Miller and a throwing error by Mariano Rivera. Jay Bell then pinch hit for Randy Johnson next, but he grounded out, unable to advance runners at first and second. Up to bat next was Tony Womack who after patiently working a 2-2 count, roped a line drive down the right field line that scored Cummings, a pinch runner that came in, and sent Jay Bell to third, tying up the ball game 2-2 in the bottom of the ninth. For reference, Mariano Rivera was ungettable in the 2001 season, untouchable. He led all of baseball with 50 saves, and with his pitch arsenal, if he was deployed late in the game, you really just started to pack it up and got ready to head home because it was a foregone conclusion. 
Diamondbacks had gotten to Rivera, and after the run scored, he then hit Craig Council to load the bases. The situation is one that you dream about and reenact as a kid. Game 7. The World Series. Bases loaded. Bottom of the ninth. Probably the last person that the Yankees wanted to see in the Arizona lineup was Luis Gonzalez, who walked to the plate and dug into the left-handed batter's box. Gonzalez swung on the first pitch and popped it foul back over the backstop. He got back into the box for the second pitch, but Rivera was taking too long for his liking, so he backed out and called time and regathered himself. After a minute, Rivera got set once again and delivered his pitch. Gonzalez swung and slapped the ball into the air between shortstop and second base, just over their heads into the outfield grass for a walk-off single. Jay Bell jogs home from third with his hands in the air, and the full Diamondbacks team streams out of the dugout to celebrate at first base as World Series champions. They had beaten the juggernaut, overcome three consecutive losses, and become the fastest expansion team to win a World Series in baseball history. They were world champions. Randy Johnson and Kurt Schilling went on to finish first and second in the National League Cy Young voting, as Johnson collected the third of what would be four straight awards. And as we mentioned before, Luis Gonzalez finished third in National League MVP voting, and Bob Brenly finished third in the National League Manager of the Year voting. All the pieces fell into place, and the phenomenal season ended with victory. Well, that's all we've got for episode number two of Sports History 101. Baseball is my favorite sport, so hopefully I was able to sway a couple of you to give it a chance. Uh, Until next time, stay safe and remember that Jesus loves you. Thanks for listening. Check out more content from the Saints Sports Network at saintssportsnetwork.home.blog.